0: My fourth assertion is that historical Christianity is the Catholic faith. No one who has followed with assent the propositions hitherto affirmed, and I speak to no others at this late stage of the argument than Christians, no one, I say, will deny that the author of Christianity gave to his apostles authority to found a church, and a commission to spread it throughout the world, all power in heaven and on earth is given unto me go ye therefore and teach all nations. They waited for the advent of the Holy Ghost who should create the church and abide with it forever. The Book of Acts opens with the day of Pentecost and the advent of the Spirit of Truth. History bears witness that the Apostles executed the commission they had received. The Book of Acts and their epistles show that the church as it was called was spread throughout the Greek world, and throughout the Roman world even to the far west in Spain, it penetrated into Egypt and Ethiopia, the earliest histories tell us that it also extended into the Far East, that is, into the Oriental world. 2. The Apostolic Mission, therefore, founded a society or church of all nations, in which there were men of all the languages spoken in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Asterisk to these were afterwards added the tongues and dialects of races which were not of the Jewish dispersion. The church thus founded interpenetrated all nations and held them in a unity which is not only natural but supernatural, a unity in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian or Scythian, bond or free. If any man denied this historical fact or hesitate to believe it, I would say, leave then the outset of the church, look into the world at this hour. There is a church and one only which fulfills these conditions it interpenetrates all nations and speaks with all tongues. It is of no nationality, and, so far as touches the way of salvation, it ignores all national distinctions. This fact is visible, palpable, undeniable in all the world at this day. This church is not one of two churches both claiming universality, much less one of many, but sole, exclusive, self-evident. There was never any worldwide asterisk s yes, August. CERM. Indipent, Pent. Torn. V. 1094. Christian Church before it, or beside it. I am speaking simply to historians with the map of the world before them. No other origin can be found for this worldwide organization than that which it claims, no date for its beginning but that which it assigns its own documents, statutes, acts run up to the date and origin which it claims and assigns for itself. The annals of the world even in its hostility recognize the existence of this society or church, and bear witness to its rise. If history be not sufficient to prove this, history can prove nothing. 3. This worldwide organization has a structure as precise and articulate as the body of a man circumflex from which the analogy is taken in the Christian writings. Asterisk it has a head and members. It ministers to itself, it grows in stature and in maturity, it is described as follows, the head even Christ, from whom the whole body being compacted and fitly joined together by what every joint supplieth, according to the operation in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in charity. T and in these words is described not the skeleton of a dead body, but the structure of a living being, it is spoken of as a person. It is called, Christ. Asterisk S. Greg, in P.S. Torn. 3. 511. F. Ep. 4. 15. 16. J. I. Core. 12. 12. Again, in another place we read, the church which is his body, asterisk and that the life of the body is the Holy Ghost, one body, one spirit. F and here we may make one step onward. The same evidence that proves the advent and the divinity of Jesus Christ proves also the advent and the perpetual office of the Holy Ghost. 4. Thus far I have treated the church as a subject of merely human history. But the witness of Christian history affirms that the Church is also a divine creation. I may, therefore, henceforward speak of the Church in its divine office, and invest it with the properties which its own history claims for it. The Church describing Christian history has life in itself, though not of itself. The influx of life, into all its members, comes from its head. The Lord and life-giver, that is the Holy Ghost, abides in it. Its organization is human because knit together of men, joined by a supernatural union to our manhood in the person of the incarnate Son, but it is also divine, because its head is the Son of God, its life is imperishable and its unity indissoluble, because both are derived from a divine person who is inseparably joined to it as to his mystical body. 5. There are thus two elements in this universal asterisk kep. I. 23 tf. 4. 4. L1BKXRY St. Mary's College Organization, The One Human, The Other Divine. The human element is by nature subject to sin and death, but by union with the divine it is regenerate and imperishable. Every member of the mystical body is liable to fall back under the power of sin and death, but though it is certain that all members taken singly, may so fall, it is also certain that all, that is the body as a whole, can never fall from its head. History shows that there ever has been a remnant according to the election of grace, the seven thousand who never bow the knee to the God of this world, the innocent, the penitent, the saints, who can never be separated from their divine head, or from the Lord and life giver, to whom they are united by a substantial though not a hypostatic union, S. Gregory Nazi and Zen says. Asterisk in them the two great unions, the one to the head, the other to the Holy Ghost, are always sustained, and the life of the Church, therefore, can never fail. Such is the divine and essential unity of the Church. But its external organization consists in a visible head in the Episcopate diffusion throughout the world in the priesthood springing from the Episcopate, and in the faithful united to their pastors. If anyone desires historic proof of this, let him asterisk or at. 12. In Pentecost, Torn. I. 740. Read the Epistle of S. Clement to the Corinthians, the letters of S. Ignatius of Antioch in the Apostolic Days, S. Irinsers against Heresies in the second Century. Titlian in the third, S. Optatus and S. Augustine in the fourth, S. Leo in the fifth. Let him then take the history of the councils and the succession in the see of Peter. 6. Running through these histories there are to be found two offences declared by the Christian law to be capital, or deadly, namely, heresy and schism, or, in other words, the false liberty of opinion in matters of religious belief. And the willful liberty of separation from the public worship and sacraments, that is, from the unity of the Church. Both these offences were punished with excommunication, or cutting off from the Catholic unity. But why should this twofold use of human liberty be treated as a capital offence and held to be deadly? No dissent from human teachers can be deadly, no separation from a human organization can be worthy of anathema. By no means. Heresy and schism are deadly precisely for this reason. The teacher from whom heresy descends is divine, and the unity that schism breaks is divine also. Heresy resists the divine witness of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Truth, and schism resists the Holy Ghost, the charity of God incorporated in the body of Christ, and the author of its unity. The unity of the faith and of the Church springs from the Holy Ghost. They both are one because He is one. Truth and charity may be multiplied as light and flame, but they cannot be divided by antagonism. They are always the same, and always one, for the Holy Ghost is truth and charity. But if it be said, heresy and schism are deadly, yes, if such opposition or separation be without a cause, no, if the cause be sufficient, I answer, no cause can be sufficient to break the unity of charity because the unity of charity reposes on the unity of truth, and no cause can be sufficient to break the unity of truth, because the unity of truth cannot fail, the teacher of truth being divine. 7. We here make another step forward. From this point it follows that there is forever in the world a divine teacher, who always preserves the truth which he revealed in the beginning. The advent of the Son by incarnation, passion, resurrection, Redeemed the world. The advent of the Holy Ghost has revealed and interpreted the divine actions and passions accomplished by the advent of the Son. The second person of the Holy Trinity finished his work and ascended into heaven. The third person came to abide forever and to carry on the work of the redemption as the illuminator and sanctifier of men. While the Son taught in Jerusalem, there was a divine teacher visible in the midst of his disciples. When the Holy Ghost came according to prophecy and to promise, it was expressly declared that there should be forever a divine teacher in the world. Asterisk either there is or there is not a divine teacher in the world. There is here no via media. The choice is inevitable. The necessity to choose is peremptory. The divine certainty of faith depends upon the presence of a divine teacher. The salvation of man depends on divine faith. Deny the presence of a divine teacher, and show me the divine certainty of your faith. Confess the presence of a divine teacher, and two conclusions follow, first, that heresy is a sin against the Holy Ghost, so constantly, that no sufficient cause can ever be found for breaking the unity of charity which rests upon the unity of truth, for the divine teacher can never fail, and the truth that he teaches can likewise never fail. 8. Such is the testimony of Christian history from the beginning until now. Esser in says, Erbi by spiritus." circumflex backslash asterisk guess John 14. 16, 17, 26. Dash pipe contra hustrit Lib. 3. C. 24. The Church is His Visible Manifestation. S. Cyprian calls the Church Sacramentum Veritatis, asterisk an outward and visible sign of the truth. It is by the visible Church that he manifests his invisible presence. When S. Paul said one body, one spirit, there was one visible Church rising in the world from Jerusalem to Rome, from Syria to Spain. This visible body was the perpetual witness of its invisible head. S. Eve says that the apostles saw the head, and believed in the body that was to come. We see the body and believe in the head who is at the right hand of the Father. He says also that the voice of the head is the voice of the body, and that the voice of the body is the voice of the head. He asks, if they are in one flesh, how are they not also in one voice? Percent but if they be not of one voice how shall his words be true, he that heareth you, heareth me? and how is this identity of voice second word how can we make an act of faith that the voice of the body and the voice of the head are always one and the same because of the perpetual presence guidance and assistance of the holy ghost the spirit of truth by whom the aster is kept ixii 132 op ed Values. f sum in Diebus Pass. Torn. V. 997. J. in Psalm XXX. And XL. Torn. 4. 147, 344. Church was created, abiding forever in it as the sanctuary of his presence, and teaching by it as the organ of his voice. 9. Heresy is, then, a mortal sin, because it is a sin against the Holy Ghost. What sin is there in contradicting a human teacher? It may be rash, it may be foolish, it may be presumption, but heresy or mortal sin it cannot be, for the human teacher may err, and the gainsayer may be in the right. Any system or communion or self-called church which disclaims infallibility, forfeits thereby its authority over the conscience of its people. They may err in contradicting their human or fallible teacher, but heretics they cannot be. The Catholic and Roman Church has from the beginning believed and taught that, by divine assistance, it never has erred, and never can err, in witnessing, guarding, and teaching the whole revelation of God as given to the apostles. 10. Little thought is necessary to show that if the body cannot err its visible head cannot err. D of the Church stands in two relations, the one to the divine head, whose vicar he is, the other to the whole flock on earth, of which he is the supreme teacher and guide. If the head on earth could err, how could he be the vicar of the divine head, who is the truth? If he could not discern between truth and falsehood, between food and poison, between the revelation of God and human error, how could he be the supreme teacher of the universal church? It needs much credulity to believe that the head can err, and that the body cannot, or that the head and the body can contradict each other, like the witnesses who accused our Lord. If they can how shall the world know which to believe? Moreover, if the head of the church have divine authority and yet may err, he may bind men by divine authority to believe what is erroneous, or what is false. But how shall the faithful know when he has erred and when he has not? Who shall countersign his teaching? And is the countersigner infallible? If he can err, of what worth his countersignature? If he cannot err, then he is an infallible teacher upon earth. And here two things must be noted. The one, that in holy scripture many individuals, for instance, the prophets, have spoken by divine assistance, which preserved them from error. The other, that in the uninspired writers or fathers of the church it is the successor of Peter who is believed to be exempt from error by divine assistance, that is guarded forever in the truth. And in this we see why the visible head also is the fountain of unity. From the unity of the head flows the unity of the body. The unity of the Church is not only a moral unity, that is, by the unanimity of its members, but it is also a numerical unity. It has one divine head in heaven, and one visible head on earth. And this unity of the Church is in the first place internal, necessary, indissoluble. Its external unity is the visible manifestation of the unity of faith, a hope, charity of intellect, heart, and will, wrought by the Holy Ghost, who alone can make men unius moris in domo, and therefore unius labii. Without this internal unity of truth and charity, all external unity is impossible, and if it were possible it would be a mask and a falsehood if the internal unity of truth were wanting. This twofold unity, therefore, is numerical, exclusive, indivisible. And this unity of truth and of the visible church is the witness to the world of the unity of God, and of the divine monarchy which reigns over all his works. The church bears its witness not only by its unity of voice, but by the visible monarchy of its universal government. 11. What has hitherto been said amounts to this, the church, founded by Jesus Christ, is the visible and universal witness for God, it is numerically Joreh, and exclusively one, its unity is indivisible, its life indefectible, its voice infallible, its authority divine. We have here its four notes and its three properties. No other body or church can show these notes and properties, or bear this test. But separation from this numerical and exclusive unity began under the eyes of the apostles. S. John writes, They went out from us because they were not of us. Asterisk and esged, these be they that separate themselves, not having the spirit. He fixes on the cause of schism, non habant spiritum. They had not the Holy Ghost the spirit of truth, and therefore fell away into heresy and schism. S. Augustine says that before his time the church had condemned 80 heresies, and that the multitude uncondemned was innumerable. Where are now the heresies of the East, the Dositzi, the Arians, the Monophysites, the Monothrites, the Eutychians? They have either ceased to be or the world has forgotten them. Where are the heresies of the West, the Montanists, the Novatians, the Pelagians, the Sacramentarians? In a little while where will be Lutherans, Zwinglians, Calvinists? Every plant that my Heavenly Father hath not planted should be rooted up but the mystical vine abides forever. This one church asterisk is John 2. 19. Ephelius in in it. Founded by our divine Redeemer spread into all nations by the apostles, interpenetrating and uniting all, refusing all nationality, but lifting all nations into a supernatural unity which is indissoluble even when all other bonds of this world are broken, and even when the nations are in mutual warfare. This one universal empire, self-evident as the light, speaking to the eye by its visible presence and to the ear by its living and articulate voice, this is a fact not to be denied, for a city seated on a hill cannot be hid. It is a phenomenon like the sun, the light of the world, an epiphany, a Yevsha the witness of God manifest in the flesh. 12. The witness that the church bears for God is threefold. First, it affirms all that God has revealed of himself by the light of nature, his power and divinity, his goodness and providence, so constantly, all that patriarchs and prophets, in the revelation to Israel, declared of his spirituality, his moral perfections of wisdom, power, justice, mercy, pity, equity, goodness benevolence, beneficence, and thirdly, all that has been revealed to us by the mission and advent of the Son from the Father, and by the mission and advent of the Holy Ghost from the Father and the Son. The Church has always been conscious that it is the prolongation and perpetuity of the Incarnation. It is visible as Christ was visible, and He in it is always visible to faith as the Church itself is visible to sense. The whole history of the Christian world attests the Incarnation, which is the chief cornerstone of its existence. Of this, the Dogmata Theologica of Patavius, and Cardinal France Line's work on the Incarnation give the historical evidence an abundant quotation. I name them because they are positive, that is, historical, abounding in the words of the Fathers, who, thus far, may be regarded as historical witnesses. The historical evidence for the faith of the Holy Trinity and of the Incarnation may be classed under four heads. 1. The administration of baptism throughout the Church. 2. The baptismal creeds, which in East and West are completely one. 3. The uninspired Christian writers. 4. The ecumenical councils against the heresies that assailed the Trinity and the Incarnation from Arius to Macedonius. 13. In truth, in what remains of the Christian world there is now little or no controversy over the two first divisions of the baptismal creed. The battlefield now lies in the third and last division of the creed, in which we confess our faith in the Holy Ghost and His perpetual office. I have long thought that the second seret but real cause of the so-called Reformation was that the presence and office of the Holy Ghost had been much obscured in popular belief. If the so-called reformers had truly believed in the perpetual assistance of the Holy Ghost in the Church, how could they have denied its infallibility? How could they have persisted science violence in heresy and schism? If they had believed in the personal advent and perpetual presence of the Holy Ghost, dwelling in the mystical body that is in the Church, how could they have turned back to the partial and indistinct belief of the Jewish Church as to the Spirit of God? The Jews believed in the Spirit of God, as the Creator and Renewer of the soul of man, and as the Giver of all light and sanctity to the soul, they believed in His universal presence, and in His striving with the will and the heart of all mankind, and that He works by His grace in every several soul. But the Jews under the old law did not believe His advent, presence, and office in the mystical body, because the mystical body did not as yet exist. It could not exist before its head was incarnate, and it did not exist until its head was glorified. Asterisk the advent of the sun and the asterisk is John 7 39. F. Advent of the Holy Ghost were both foretold, but neither as yet fulfilled. The Jews therefore knew the Spirit of God only in His universal office in individuals one by one. They did not because they could not know him in the revelation of his personality, and his perpetual presence dwelling in the body of Christ, which faith comes through the Incarnation alone. Now this is precisely what the so-called reformers either ignored or rejected. They Judaized. They returned to the twilight of the Jewish church, professing to believe in the personality of the Holy Ghost, and his manifestation by tongues of fire at Pentecost. But they still disbelieved and denied this perpetual office by which the Church is forever guarded in the truth. The Puritan writers, such as Owen, believed and wrote fully of the Spirit as the illuminator and sanctifier of individuals, that is, of the members of Christ one by one, but of the Pentecostal coming, presence, and office in and through the body of Christ, they seem either to have no consciousness or to reject it altogether. In rejecting the infallibility of the Church, therefore, they, in fact, rejected the Pentecostal mission and evangelical office of the Holy Ghost, which specially distinguishes the faith of Catholics from the faith of Judaism. 14. As the baptismal creed is the expansion of the baptismal form, so the theology of the Church is the expansion of the baptismal creed. The creed is as a focus in which all the lights of Revelation are concentrated and from which they flow as a radiance filling a circle always widening into greater lieu the theology of the Church, though not a backslash science profredicta, because it is resolved not into principles that are self-evident, but into eternal. Truths known by revelation, is nevertheless scientific in its treatment and method. It has a unity, a procession and symmetry of truth. truth proceeding from truth, in perfect harmony and coherence. This theology has hid three periods, the patristic, in which the early Christian teachers commented on holy scripture, according to the tradition of the creed and the decrees of councils, the scholastic, in which the vast materials laid up by the fathers were analysed and reduced to order, the conciliar, in which the church has defined and closed the few remaining questions of theological speculation. 15. The worldwide tradition of the Catholic faith contains in itself and rests upon the intellectual tradition of mankind. On the Feast of the Holy Innocents in 1869, 700 bishops, gathered from the Universal Church, representing some 30 nations, made profession of their faith before Pius IX. In the words of two councils of Nixie, CCNSTANTINOPLE, and Florence summed up in the Council of Trent, those who were absent were morally present and united in this great act of united testimony. It was truth that day of the Church vox Asia's secret vox Multitudinis. The whole Christian world spoke by the episcopate. Take this epiascopate, that is, take the Catholic Church out of the world, and what remains of Christendom? Will the Greek or the Anglican separations represent the day of Pentecost? The time when they went out from the Unity of Christendom is written in history. They could witness with us while they were with us. When they ceased to be with us, because they were not of us, their witness changed its voice, and their circumflex testimonies do not agree together. Take out of the world the Catholic and Roman Church, and the void cannot be filled up. The rush of all schisms, heresies, and beliefs would not fill the void. It would bring black chaos where order reigned before, and uncertainty bred of mutual contradiction. There would be no lineal descent of truth from the apostles, no steadfast light of the day of Pentecost, no perpetual witness of the Incarnation. How, then, could we know that Jesus Christ ever came into the world? Religio viores. 77 put back the Catholic and Roman Church into the Christian world and at once the Church of all nations is its own history. Its living tradition is unbroken. It has its own annals, and knows their significance. It has its own documents, and it knows their meaning. It has its own immemorial usages, customs, interpretations, and it knows their origin and import. It has no need of scientific historians, or of pretentious critics to tell it what was the divine deposit committed to its custody. You what man knoweth the things of a man but the spirit of a man that is in him. So the things also that are of God no man knoweth, but the spirit of God. Asterisk to those who do not believe the church to be a, moral person, endowed with the divine life and light, with a continuous intelligence and an unfailing memory these words of S. Paul may have no meaning. To those who believe that the mystical body of Christ has a living and perpetual consciousness of its own divine endowments, of the deposit of the faith committed to its custody, of its conflicts with error, of its definitions of truth, of the history of its own doctrines, to such the meaning of these words is that the Church knows itself by an internal and supernatural light. Each man has a consciousness of his personal identity asterisk 2 against which no other man can argue. But this personal identity contains in itself the memory and knowledge on his part in all the fullness of his manifold experience, both of internal habits and acts, and of external events and history. And each man alone for himself holds the key of interpretation, and is the sole interpreter in like manner no critic or interpreter external to the living consciousness of the church can prescribe its teaching or revise its judgments, the spiritual man judgeth all things, and he himself is judged of no man. 16. The church knows its own history, both by natural light and by supernatural illumination. It rejects and condemns those who appeal from its definitions to human history and human interpretations precisely because it knows them to be false. It declares all such appeals to be both treason and heresy, treason because to appeal from its teaching to any other teacher is an act of contumacy against its authority, which is supreme, and heresy, because its authority is divine. To appeal from Queen Victoria to Alfred the Great or Appounded the First, would be soon settled by the law of England. To appeal from Paul to Gaius or Actvilla would be to deny the divine authority of the apostle asterisk I Cor. two fifteen men too hot-headed to be candid or too light-headed to be accurate have called this the triumph of dogma over history. Some have even said with less honor that to appeal to history is here denounced as heresy, not so fast to appeal from a human teacher to human history is no heresy but to appeal from a divine teacher to any other tribunal is ipso facto heresy. This clause, however, is always carefully suppressed. The objectors conceal the fact that they do not believe in any divine authority. They therefore, in contradicting their church and all its teachers, commit neither treason nor heresy. Where there is no supreme authority, there is no treason, and where there is no divine teacher, there is no heresy. The triumph of dogma over history, therefore, really means this, the church defines its doctrines in spite of you, because it knows its history better than you. Its dogmas include its history, and its history is part of its consciousness, sustained by divine assistance. If you would deny the conclusion, you must deny the premises, that is, the divine assistance which perpetuates the faith. 17. History does not mean only books manuscripts, documents, and scientific historians. It means also the moral personality of empires and kingdoms, the living and ever accumulating tradition of human action and human knowledge embodied in usages, customs, laws, institutions. All these are witnesses and testify with articulate voice. The history of the church is the church itself its worldwide circumference guarded by the universal episcopate, and its center the fountain of supreme authority, its unbroken succession of bishops in all nations, its lineal inheritance of the primacy of the chief of the apostles, its nineteen ecumenical councils, all these things are history, historical documents, testimonies, records, and living witnesses. To quote human and uninspired texts against the voice and witness of the universal Church is no sign of common sense. The scientific historian reads the history of the Catholic Church in one sense, the Catholic Church reads its own history in another. Choose which you will believe. For me it is enough to say in matter of its history what S. Augustine said in matters of faith, Securus Judicat Orbis Terrarum. 18. When our Lord said to Peter, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and thou being once converted, confirm thy brethren, asterisk he foretold that there should be forever a warfare against the faith. When he said, less than, the gates of hell shall not prevail, he implied that they should be in perpetual assault. Asterisk S. Luke XXII. 31, 32. Nevertheless there has been an unbroken tradition of immutable faith, resting on the promise of divine assistance. In this doctrine also there have been three periods of discussion and analysis and definition as to the mode of conceiving and expressing the truth about which in itself there was no doubt. 1. The first was a period of a simple unquestioning belief that the successor of Peter had by divine promise a special stability in faith. 2. The second, a period of analysis and of controversy provoked by the Great Western Schism out of which came Gallicanism within the Church and Anglicanism out of it. 3. The Third, a period of definition in which the simple faith of the first period was defined with the precision of thought, and of words that the analysis of controversy had attained. 1. 9. At the time of the Vatican Council the world achieved the great victory it prejudiced the minds even of good men, it blinded their eyes and it made their ears deaf. They would not listen, therefore they could not believe. And they would not listen because they had no will to be convinced and rather a wish not to be convinced, but this will not be so forever. At and after the Council of Nicaea, many died in the belief that the world had been divided without need, and tormented for libraries St. Mary's College and Iota, But we now can see that the iota has saved the faith of the world. We see also that the whole ecclesia descends, the universal episcopate, represented by 700 of its members united to their head, less only perhaps three, bore witness to the infallibility of the Roman pontiff. About forty thought it inopportune to define the doctrine, but they all alike submitted when it was defined, and the bishops who were not present sent their prompt adhesion, This worldwide unanimity is the past living in the present, the history of the faith written on the living and lineal intelligence of the Church, a living scripture of the Spirit of Truth. 20. The Vatican Council defined the two primary truths of the natural and supernatural order, the one that the existence of God can be certainly known by the things that are made, Asterisk the other that the Roman Pontiff in defining the faith and law of God by divine assistance is guarded from all error, f these two truths are the two principles of divine certitude. The one is the infallibility of the light of reason in the natural order, the other is the infallibility of the church in its head by a perpetual divine assistance. Asterisk constit. Dogm. defided F Constit. Dogm. Direclesia. The so called Reformation or intellectual revolt against the divine authority of the Church has borne its fruit, and its fruit is twofold uncertainty as to the truths of revelation among those who still believe, and skepticism as to the lights and laws of the natural order. Men now doubt as to the reports of sense and the judgments of reason founded on these reports. This uncertainty is fatal to faith, for where doubt begins, faith ends. But worse than this, Skepticism is a palsy of the reason, it denies to men the means of knowledge. We have returned to the skepticism of the ancients, of whom Augustine said that they, refuted themselves, for they were certain that we cannot be certain of anything. The Christian world began by contending with agnostics, who believed all science, or this, to be evolved from the human reason, and it is ending by conflict with agnostics, who affirmed that there is nothing to be known beyond the horizon of reason bounded by sense. And yet, though they cannot know God to exist, they talk and write as if they know that He does not exist. 21. The 19th century, by reason of its special intellectual aberrations, stood in need of these two definitions of the Vatican Council. They meet the two great wounds of the world, namely, an irrational skepticism and a mutilated Christianity. CPNT and sibi domum masterisk For nearly 1900 years the sanctuary of the faith has been rising and expanding. The lineal identity of faith is perfect in all time and in all the world. But the perpetual contradictions of the world have compelled deeper mental conceptions, and more precise verbal enunciation of the one immutable truth. And as the truth has been elaborated, the sacred terminology of faith has been defined and fixed. Therefore they who are within the fold are unius labiae, those that are without cannot understand each other's speech, and have ceased to build. The city of confusion is in ruins. Heresies there must be, that the truth may be manifest. There is no choice but this, either to believe in the voice of the living church, or to appeal from it and go back to documents of uninspired men, local, occasional, and obscure, often of doubtful authenticity of uncertain text, and of equivocal meaning. If such be the raw material of the work, who and what are the work in a metereen? Has any one of them, or have they altogether, the promise of divine assistance to interpret history against the living witness of the Church of God? They appeal to the past, which is dead and speechless, save as it echoes their own voice, we listen to the Sisi? I and voice of a divine teacher who lives forever they choose to be critics, we are content to be disciples. 22. And now to make an end. The sum of these thoughts and arguments is this, I know that I am, I know that I have the light of reason, the dictate of conscience, the power of will, I know that I did not make all things, nor even myself. A necessity of my reason compels me to believe in one higher and greater than I, from whom I come, and to whose image I am made. My perfection and welfare consist in knowing Him, in being conformed to Him. I am sure that He is good, and that He desires my happiness, and that, therefore, He has not hid Himself from me, but has made Himself known, to the end that I may love Him and be like Him. I find that the light of the knowledge of God has filled the world, and has been ever growing by fresh accessions of light, waxing brighter and clearer until it culminated, in the face of Jesus Christ. In Him God and man were perfectly revealed. In Himself, in His words, and in His commandments, I find the most perfect knowledge of God that the world has ever known, the most perfect knowledge of Himself that man has ever reached, the most perfect law of morals towards God and towards man that men have ever received. All this is to be found in Christianity alone. Christianity is, therefore, the fullness of the revelation of God. Moreover, I find that the maximum of human and historical evidence proves this true and perfect Christianity to be coincident and identical with the worldwide and immutable faith of the Catholic and Roman Church. On these foundations, foursquare and imperishable, rests the faith to which God in mercy has called me, in which I hope to live and to die, for which I also hope that, by God's grace, I should be willing to give my life.